This morning's passage is found in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. As many of you are probably aware, we are going through the parables of Jesus, uh, where he gives us the secrets to the kingdom. And we're kind of working into a part of the parables that are in Luke, in what's called his travel narrative. That means Jesus, starting in chapter 9, verse 51, has set his face toward his final visit to Jerusalem, where he will obviously, as we know, be crucified and raised. And so in these parables, he's giving so many lessons that we can learn from. And this morning, we're going to learn how to pray. I think um, if you are a Christian, I, I think you would agree that at times, and maybe at all times, you struggle with prayer. Even if you feel like you're, you're nailing it right now, we know it's a struggle. And my sense would be most of us would say, I don't know. Like if I'm even doing it at all. So I don't know where you are in that spectrum, but my hope this morning is we can learn from what Jesus teaches us. We're going to see in this passage, uh, a disciple has seen him praying. And when Jesus is finished praying, the disciple asks to be taught. And he does so. Also, we're going to notice it's a, it's a Lord's Prayer. Uh, the shorter version, the longer version of his prayers in Matthew 6. Um, so we have the shorter version. And then he moves into these parables to really highlight the principles of, of his teaching. And so we're going to wrestle with the parables and their meaning and learn how to pray. So let's read together, starting in chapter 11 of Luke, verses 1 to 13. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you that you have sent your son who glorified you in every way and left us such rich teaching. And now we pray with him for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the meaning of these passages and most importantly to understand how to pray, how to speak to you, how to interact with you, how to, how to commune with you on a deep personal level as well as a corporate level, Father. We ask this in your name. 
Amen. One of the reasons I think we struggle with prayer, maybe the primary reason we struggle with prayer is this. Our culture feeds us with this knowledge of becoming like a master at stuff. The second we enter a new area of study, a new hobby, a new relationship, even Bible studies and prayer time, we want to master the thing as fast as we can, right? We want to get to become an expert really fast. It's very uncomfortable for us to need to be taught. It's very uncomfortable to be less than. We feel weak. And yet, Jesus is saying one of the key themes of this entire area of the scripture is heaven is hidden from those who are wise and understanding in the world's eyes, and it's revealed to children. That's what he says in chapter 10. Last week we read those verses. Uh, The 72 had just returned from amazing acts of ministry in the name of Jesus. And, And remember, Jesus says, that's exciting, but be more excited that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus prays in the Holy Spirit, thanking God, the Father, that little children can understand this. There's something about heaven and and the kingdom that is so upside down to us. So when we come to prayer, it's like that one perfect place where our very desire to master it's what's actually crushing us. And that's what these parables are gonna show, I believe. And so I hope you'll stick with me through the conversation because what we're gonna see is that you are cherished. If you're a Christian, God the Father cherishes you. And because of that relationship, you can boldly ask what you will ask in prayer. Because of that love he has for you. Will you believe that this morning? We're going to see from these parables two major principles and then the power source. The principles are going to be partnership and position. Those are our principles. And the last thing we're going to discuss is therefore the power that will infuse those principles for a better prayer life. So starting with the partnership, I'm going to spend just a moment unpacking this first parable. It's often called the friend at midnight. It has a lot of cultural, um, we need to really understand this culture to really understand this parable is what I'm trying to say. And so, so often when we come to scripture, it's helpful if we can have people guide us into the way the culture operated. First of all, the first challenge of the parable, and just to remind you, we read a lot, uh, a, a, friend, a friend or a person comes to a friend, wakes them up late at night with a request for food because their friend is on a journey. Okay, do you remember the parable? And then the friend gives them the resources, and now we're gonna talk about the details. Um, First of all, a lot of times when I've read that, and many people read this parable, they think that Jesus is saying the friend will say these negatives, right? Don't bother me, the door is shut. Don't, you know, my children are asleep. But what most of the commentators agree on is actually Jesus is saying, that's a ridiculous, no one would do that. In the construct, which of you, Jesus almost always follows that with like, a hyper, like an obvious answer, no. Who has a friend, is how you'd paraphrase this, who when you went to them with the real need would say such silly things as, I'm already asleep with my kids. I mean, you've woken them up, you're yelling. The door is shut like it's Fort Knox. Right? You know, and, and you know, the door, I can't open. It just is crazy ridiculous. I can't even get up. No, Jesus is saying no, of course not. So that's, you, you need to understand the giver, the, the provider is not gonna say those things and Jesus is making the point. Your community, the community that this is in, 
is so hospitable that that would never happen. But furthermore, he goes on, I tell you, though he will not get up and give anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That's the second issue of that parable. We need to understand that word, impudence, because scholars are wrestling with it. It almost sounds like people have falsely said it's persistence, and they've linked this to the Luke 18 parable of the persistent widow. Though that's not way off, it's not persistence. In fact, he's not even knocking. He's just calling out to a friend. So I've wrestled through it, and I'm going to give you what I think is happening in this, in, in this scenario. The word impudence, um, we don't use very often. The longer definition would be a lack of sense of what is proper. Another one would be carelessness about the good opinion of others. In other words, you are doing an action that in and of itself would be like really wrong. And so I think a perfect example of that would be if someone rang your doorbell at 2 a.m. You'd be really irritated, right? Unless when you opened the door, they said, my wife is in labor and my car won't start. Right? Now, let me ask you, how many of you would help that person? Just raise your hands. Okay. Would you do it because they're your friend or because you're partnering in the reality of that situation? What Jesus is saying in this parable is in this culture, when a sojourner would come into someone's home at night, maybe they're traveling because of the heat of the desert, we don't know, but if they came at night and they needed food, it would be kind of an issue that the entire village would adopt. Like, this is a big deal for the whole village. Like, we care so much. So at, at midnight, you wake up somebody, which is inconveniencing, but with a real need, of course they're gonna serve you. Not just because they're your friend, but most likely because of the fact that they share the need. They, they partner in the need. Um, another illustration of impudence. Yesterday, there was a K-Life golf tournament, and um, Grayson and some of his friends and his granddad, Dan, that'll come up later, went to the golf course to play. And at the end, Emily and I and the girls and, and went up to kind of check him out and talk to him and hang out. And there was this moment where Dan says, Emily's dad, uh, I've lost my sunglasses. I'm going to go look for him. He gets in his cart and starts to drive away. Meanwhile, we found out they were right here. And Uncle Paul, really quiet, gentle Uncle Paul, out of nowhere goes, Dan! And I mean, it was embarrassing. That was impudence. That was like he did what he needed to do to get Dan to stop, and Dan stopped, not because it's Uncle Paul, because someone yelled his name in an embarrassing way. And then thankfully he got his sunglasses and all that. So I just feel like there's an illustration of someone acting outside of character, but because the need was somewhat important, okay? The point is, are we partnering with the Father in our prayer life? When you think about the Lord's Prayer that he's just said right before this parable, he begins with Father and hallowed be your name, but he says, your kingdom come. The question before us as we think about our prayers is, are our prayers partnering with the Father's purposes? Are we thinking of our prayers as things we want and we need? Or are we thinking of them as things that he wants and he needs? Last week we talked about Jesus who has come and he will pursue as far as the curse is found. Understand, if you have an illness, that's God's business. If you have a broken relationship, God cares about that. Right? If you have financial difficulties, any need you have, 
you have a partner and the creator of the universe who longs to see that curse removed and he cares about you just as much as this person cared about the sojourner eating food. Far more than that. Does that make sense? So that's position number one is we're, we're going to keep processing as we go, but partnering with the Father is the first thing. When I have a need, am I thinking I'm annoying God the Father or am I thinking he delights to bring answers to these questions? That's point number one, partnership. Secondly, we can ask boldly because of our position. Jesus transitions right away from this parable of the friend at midnight to um, the, fr- the very famous verses, I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then he gives these two quick parables on position, your position with God. He says, what father among you, if he has a son who asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? It's ridiculous. He's saying you have a father so much greater. In fact, he adds in verse 13, if you then, who are evil, now be clear, he's not saying like you are all evil. He's saying the world is fallen, yet we believe in what's called common grace, that even though the world is fallen, people aren't as bad as they could be. And in certain areas like family and father-son relationships, you see pictures of goodness. And Jesus is saying in those moments, you're st- as a non-redeemed person, there's still just common grace going on. How much more will your heavenly father who is perfect, who has no sin, who has only love, delight to give good gifts? And he's saying it's based on your position as a daughter and a son of the king. That's how he opens his prayer, Father. Father, I remember hearing a guy try to say, that means mostly king. Okay, I mean, then you read the rest and it's all about a father who delights to help his child, who helps to give their son. Is that your view of God when you go and pray? I remember as a child sleeping over at homes, it was the strangest thing to sleep over. The weirdest thing, I was telling Emily recently, is when someone else made eggs. No one's scrambled eggs are correct but moms, you know? And uh, in fact, I made some for Meredith, one of her friends, and I saw the friend, like, shovel it into the, into the uh, I think I have bacon grease in mine. But when you're at a house, at a sleepover, it's this weird world where, yes, the adults are being friendly, and, but you don't know where you stand. So if you need something, you go to the, the kid and, and say, hey, go get me that, you know, like, and you act like you didn't ask. Well, yes, Jesus is our elder brother, and yes, we ask in his name, but he's not saying he's welcomed us into his father. He's saying it's your father. This is your house. It's much more adoption language. If a child is adopted, the, the assumption is for a season, they're going to they're gonna wrestle with the feelings of it not being their home, but certainly the parents are going to do everything they can to say, no, 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 it's your home. This is your bedroom. That's your kitchen. Ask. And that's the, that's the second principle. These are our two principles. We're partnering with the Father in prayer, and we are praying on the basis of our position as sons and daughters. But the last thing we need to look at is, um, well, actually, I want to raise a question before I transition to our last point. I, I think we can buy into this concept a little bit, but where we might wrestle as we might wrestle with, but Ryan, I, I want to pray and I want to believe I'm a son or a daughter and I want to believe that we're partnering, but I, 
listen, I have some sins you would be shocked about. I have things I've done, even this week, that I haven't told a soul. So maybe I need to figure those things out first, right? Like there's this fear of, yeah, all things being equal, if I'm doing pretty good in life, I'll pray. And I'm, I'm fascinated that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the question is, someone's seen Jesus praying, I'm presuming, that they saw him, and they saw the intimacy. Maybe they couldn't hear the words, but they were like in awe of this prayer life. And they're like, when he comes back from that certain place, the, the disciples like, teach us to have that intimacy. And we assume Jesus is like, well, here's basically what I pray. And it is, except one line. Forgive us our sins. Does Jesus pray that? No. Jesus doesn't pray, forgive me my sin, Father. Now, he does pray in the high priestly prayer, and forgive them their sins. But Jesus is teaching you and I that we are both redeemed sons and daughters of the king, but we still wrestle with the flesh. And every time we enter prayer, it's, it's really wise to actually enter in with a heart of, Lord, I know I sin. In fact, he doesn't start there. Start with Father and holiness and praise, longing to partner with his kingdom purposes. But then he says, give us this daily bread. We're trying to figure out how to live out our daily lives and, and praying for the sustenance and dependence on the Lord. And then he says, and forgive us our sins. Sometimes those are going to be routine struggles that you can't quite see victory over. And we pray for that victory. We long for you and for all of us to get past those besetting sins. Sometimes it's things that come up out of nowhere. You, you realize for the first time, I'm entirely selfish. I mean, something can just come to you in your prayer life. But Jesus is saying, be ready and prepared and even excited to confess your sin. And even to ask not to be led into temptation. So, so as we come in as children, we're not coming in as perfect children on our own record. We're coming in as perfect children on Jesus' record who are wrestling with the realities of the fall and of our own hearts in this world. And Jesus is very well aware of that and is still inviting you, come in and call him daddy and pray boldly and join in his purposes. So how do we do that? Where does the power come from? I love the ending. I've, I've talked about it many times. You would expect as you're tracking through this passage where Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to pray and give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you? And you just kind of assume good gifts. And he doesn't say that. He says the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Now, sometimes scholars are wrestling. Is he still talking to the disciples? What's going on here? And the answer is it's both. And it's, yes, these disciples, but it's for all of the future elect who will come to know Christ, we have to pray for the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion about the Holy Spirit. I can't clear it all up in the next few moments, but I think I want to make a few things clear that might help us understand how the Holy Spirit is the power source to understanding this gospel message and to interacting with our Heavenly Father. First of all, um, I want to remind us of what the disciples would have already known from Joel 2, 28, the prophecy from the Old Testament they would have been very well aware of, where Joel says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. The Holy Spirit 
was operative in the Old Testament. But Joel is saying that one day, Sunday, he'll be operative in a more unique way where you will all be filled with the Spirit. We see at the end of John um, where Jesus has been resurrected and Mary Magdalene's clinging to him. And this is a, I got this part from Keller, Tim Keller. But it's fascinating to go back and read it with this insight. When she's clinging to him and Jesus is basically like, Mary, I have to go. His point isn't, have, I need to get away from you. His point is, if I don't ascend, the Spirit won't come into your soul and have real intimacy. There's something more profound that we're not just clinging to his ankle anymore. Jesus' Spirit dwells inside of his children. Um, sometimes I think you could debate that, but what, I don't see this Joel stuff. I don't know. Um, where is that? And so historically, we know that we believe in the cross, and we know we believe in, in the crucifixion and the ascension. Well, Luke didn't just write Luke. He wrote Acts. In fact, he wrote them as part one and two of a long story about Jesus and his church and his spirit. In the book of Acts, you can call it Acts of the Apostles, Acts of Jesus, people, even Acts of the Holy Spirit. The point is it's the Acts of the church filled with the spirit of Jesus carrying on the mission. And it starts off in, in chapter two with a bang. We've talked about it a few semesters ago with Pentecost and the Spirit coming out in these ways that clearly represent what Joel was prophesying. It's a very real historical action. But in the book of Acts, you have the entire history of the, Old, of the New Testament. And when you turn to other pages, you start to see, like in Galatians and other places, Paul help us understand even more clearly what the Spirit's role will be. And how it's not always going to be loud and thunderous, though that's wonderful. Sometimes it's a more critically needed, subtle dependency on the Father. And I'll explain that in a moment. But I want to illustrate it like this. Um, growing up in Oklahoma, oil's a big deal. I don't know if you're like me. I don't know oil real well. So some of you are like, oh, I'm not like you. Especially Zaid. But when I would watch a video, because I've never seen this happen in real life, I've seen it on movies and I've seen videos where the guys or the thing strikes the oil and it just starts spewing out. You know what I'm talking about? I always felt like, you're wasting oil. It's just going there and they're all cheering. They struck oil. I'm like, yeah, but you better start catching the oil, right? Like, it's just spilling everywhere. You're wasting it. What we don't see is the way that that oil is harnessed and how it flies airplanes across the world. The power of harnessing that substance. And so the Holy Spirit, though, comes on in a huge rush. What we find later as we learn, that the, the work of the Spirit is, is powering the church throughout time and history with individuals and corporate power that's unbelievable. And then Paul in Galatians 4, 6 says this, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, that's the spirit of adoption, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's the power. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter, and he goes on to say an heir. You are an inheritor of the kingdom. You have first position. You have full rights to come before God and to ask him and to beg him for what you need. Does that make sense? So how do you do it? George Mueller is a famous prayer warrior 
Much has been said about George Mueller. I don't have a lot of time to tell you a lot, but he was a missionary from the Netherlands to England, and he started an orphanage and did other ministries, became very famous. But one of the things he was the most famous about was prayers being answered. And just crazy stories. Um, I think one of the most famous ones is the orphanage was out of, out of resources, and they had absolutely zero idea of where lunch was coming from or any meal that particular day. And so George prays with the staff and the kids, and then there's a knock at the door, and it's like a local bread delivery person's truck had broken down. It was going to spoil, and he wondered if they had a use for the bread. My favorite was when he prayed. Um, he was heading on a speaking engagement um, on a ship coming into the east coast of America, and there was a heavy fog, and the, and the captain's like, we're not going to be able to port, so you're not going to make your speaking engagement. And uh, he said, okay, let's go pray. And they sit down together. And the captain starts trying to pray. He's like, no, 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 you don't have any faith. I'll pray. I'll take this one on. We really believe this is going to happen. And so he prays that the fog would be lifted. They go back up and the fog is clear. Now, he sounds like a jerk. He's not. He's really nice. Um, But here's my favorite thing about the transition for George Mueller. He says this, two things had to happen for my prayer life to look like that. Number one, I had to die to what people thought about me. That is a sin pattern that we could all start our morning devotions with every single day. Lord, on this day, as I go out, help me not be led into temptation of always wondering what people think of me. Because that's what we do. And social media just makes it a trillion times worse. We're consumed by that sin. Now, do you hear me? Most of us think of sins as being these outward signs that the whole world will look at and cringe, and it is true, but there's these branch sins and these trunk sins and these root sins that drive so much of it, and fear of man pleasing people is by far one of our greatest ones, and Mueller had to die to that daily. But his second one is, he said, I also had to learn to die to what George Mueller thought of George Mueller. See, we don't just want the approval of other people We like our own self-assessment so much that that is a sin pattern we can repent of daily. So my encouragement to you is this, and to get really applicable. We start off, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. So it's not said here, but it's assumed. He had a location. Maybe it changed as they traveled, but the point is there was a place. You have to have a place I know that sounds so obvious, but oftentimes we'll say things like, I want to pray more, but we don't go to the thought of like, where? Now, the moment you start talking about working out, you think of a gym. The moment you start thinking about other things, you think of locations. Prayer, where are you going to pray in the morning? Just think of it. And, and what time? Again, that sounds so legalistic, but it's not. If I don't have it planned in a time, then I'm probably not really intending on doing it. I'm just telling myself I wish I did it. So maybe this week, we all set a goal to have it every night when we go to bed, we know tomorrow's time and place where we're going to spend, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes in prayer. Secondly, let me encourage you to move through the Lord's Prayer as you pray. Whether this one or the longer version in Matthew 6, meditate on it. Listen, Father, you could just stop there and spend a lot of time on what that means. Holy is your name. You're, you're beginning your prayer time with praise. And as you move through that, give us today or tomorrow's bread. I mean, we're praying for our needs. As modern people, that sounds ridiculous. 
And yet there's a repentance in that, isn't there? Lord, I recognize I rely on you for every last drop. Pray that. Will you provide? Even though you know right after this I'm going to meet someone at Starbucks, it's okay to pray for it. Okay? And then, of course, forgiveness of our sins. Teach us to forgive others and lead us on to temptation. That's some practical stuff. I want, to, I want you, you may have seen these as you came in. I recently ordered these um, little booklets by a gentleman named Michael Reeves. He wrote the book I mentioned in their past called um, Delighting in the Trinity. So I saw this online, and it's like really short and really simple. Take one. There's like 50. So just take one until they're gone, and if they're empty, I'll order another round. But take it home and read it. It's very short, but very power-packed. And I think it could help you as you process a, a more rich prayer life. And my prayer for all of us, starting this Sunday, going forward, we would realize we really started praying more as sons and daughters of God here than we ever have before. Praying bold prayers where we partner with the Lord and his purposes. He cares more than you do about the spread of his kingdom and about healing the brokenness. So we're partnering. But he also loves you like children. He delights in you. He cherishes you when you just ask yourself, do I like my kids? He likes you way more. He doesn't stand far away and kind of, okay. He comes in. Jesus is like, bring the children to my knee. And then he sends his spirit into your soul. By whom you cry, Abba, Father. Pray in that spirit's name. Let's pray together.